getting out and staying out of personally destructive choices. And we have this wonderful uh, text, the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. A prayer like almost a benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Before all time, now and forever, amen. We've been looking at, at where problems come from. I'm not going to review the whole uh, teaching. This is the fourth part. Problems come just from living in a fallen world. Problems that come from situations beyond our own control. Um, problems that come, and this is where we are now, from personal choices. And it's the easiest to figure out and one of the hardest to deal with. Problems that come from destructive choices, habits that get formed in our lives. And we'll yet look at problems that, that or at least seeming problems, that seem to come from the uh, purifying, maturing love and wisdom of God's hand. Once you know where problems come from, you're well on your way to either recognizing what you can't do about them, things that come from living in a fallen world, uh, there, there will always be until Jesus comes again. There's going to be hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes and sickness and all sorts of things like that that you just, they're not in your power to control. We like to think we control everything, but we don't. So once you know where problems come from, it either gives you the grace and the wisdom to, to face them knowing God is sovereign and God is in control even though there might be pain or discomfort, or if you see they're the result of personal choices, it gives you the chance to look at why, why am I getting into this situation? What can I do to change this? When we put ourselves into situations problems of our own making, we looked at the three steps, the same three steps, and we took a whole week on this, that initiated your conversion. Those are the same three steps to getting out of situations that you've created through sinful, unwise choices. And, and the process involves confession, belief, and renewed obedience. And we looked at those three steps, and I'm not going to go over those again tonight. Once you get out of a difficult situation, a problem of your own making, the next step is to stay out. Getting out and staying out are not the same thing. There is provision for all believers to escape, not this fallen world, but the drudgery of repeated sinful choices that put us in bondage, bondage to ourselves. There's provision. Our text, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's a wonderful phrase. Able to keep you from stumbling. We're in the process of studying three key passages of Scripture that are geared to freeing the life from not only the guilt of sin, but the 
bondage of repeated sin and the inability to get out and stay out and live clean and walk in the light. The Ten Commandments will guide your actions. We spent a week on that. The Beatitudes will guide the attitudes that should shape and form your inner life. 1 Corinthians 13 will guide you in your relationships. We don't live alone. Our lives bump off of other people. And a lot of the sinful things that we get ourselves into have to do with how we respond to each other in situations. Because we live in a fallen world and we live with fallen people. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. And then we'll wrap up this teaching tonight. If we have time, I want to I want to also include the relationship between prayer and staying out of uh, destructive habits and choices. So point number one, let's get right into it. A life regulated by the love of God will always be holy and pleasing to God. I'm not starting in 1 Corinthians 13. I'll get there. But Romans 13, 8 to 10 says this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He means the the law of God, the will of God, and the commandments, as the context makes clear. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. They're summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, there's a couple of things that are really worth noting in that verse, in that text. First, the Christian, Paul says, owes love to his brother. That's in the eighth verse. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Don't owe anything, but owe this. The reason, the reason I owe you love in the body of Christ and the reason you owe me love in the body of Christ is, well, we have received God's grace and love when we least deserved it. We didn't merit God's love. We didn't qualify for God's love. He, he gave it. He gave it at his own expense. And Paul is saying, as Christians walk around in their own skins with a deep awareness of how richly undeserved they are of God's love and kindness and bounty and mercy, they will recognize that, that it they can't be misers giving out grace and mercy and love to others. It, it would just be acutely um, blind and short-sighted. We owe the same kind of love to one another that we have received from our Lord. Which, by the way, is what Jesus meant when he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another... Here it is, just as I have loved you. And then he repeats it. You also are to love one another. Love one another, just as I have loved you. Love one another. 
In other words, there's, there's a kind of love that you can carry around that you think is, is benevolent because, well, you've got certain people, they're nice to you and you like them back. And Jesus says, when you do that, there is no reflection of my love and character in your life at all. But when people mistreat you and people don't warm up to you and people say unkind things about you and people are anything but gracious to you, now you have this wonderful opportunity to display true Christian love. Love one another as I have loved you. How did he love me? Well, Paul tells me, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. He, he, gave, he gave his most to people who were at their worst. Not just in terms of being weak or poor, but people who were his enemy, who were, who were at their worst in terms of their relationship with him. That's when he gave his best to us. Love one another as I have loved you. This is not Jesus' way of telling us just to love each other a whole bunch. This is a distinctly Christian love. This is a love, this is a love that only Christians have a biblical motivation to extend. Because we are, we are the one religion on planet earth that at its core has a doctrine of redemption and atonement. That we have, there's all sorts of religions that have God and that have moral teachings and that encourage people to be nice to each other. Christianity is not unique in any way, shape, or form. The, the world is packed with religions like that. But only Christians come on the scene and say, there's, there's an incentive, a motive for loving enemies that no one else possesses. We are unique in the sense that at the core of our belief, enemy love is what saved us. It's what redeemed us. Others may be benevolent toward people who wrong them just out of a sense of duty. We would do it out of a sense of, well, I, I, I owe that. It's... That's not the most I can do. It's the least I can do, given what has been extended so freely to me. Does everybody see the difference there? This is cross-rooted love that extends grace for the distinctly Christian reason that we've received atoning grace for our own sins through a crucified, risen Lord. No one else can say that. You are unique on the planet. And it means you owe that kind of love. You owe that kind of love from a thankful heart. So the first thing he says is, the Christian owes love to his brother. That's in verse 8. The second thing this text says, the Romans 13 text, loving actions fulfill the law of God in all my relationships. Verse 10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the, and this phrase, the fulfilling of the law. It's the fulfilling of the law. And, and the important point here is that as I extend God's love in all of my relationships, I not only benefit those whom I love, 
but I keep my heart pure. Love is the fulfilling of the law, he says. The fulfilling of all the law. I fulfill the law of God in this very big part of my life, but not just any definition of love will do. The kind of love that fulfills the law isn't Hallmark love. It isn't Oprah love. It's, it's biblical love. Only love defined on God's terms from God's motive of a redeemed heart. Only that kind of love is the fulfilling of the law. And so it has the capacity. We're talking about getting out of difficult situations. It has the capacity to, to keep my heart pure and clean and law-abiding. That's the fulfilling of the law, right? Keeps my heart law-abiding before God, righteous before God. And that's where 1 Corinthians 13 comes in. We're just going to focus on verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And what I want you to notice, I made that little chart. I'm not working through that whole chart with you. You can look at it. Love is defined morally rather than emotionally. So what I want us to see tonight is scriptural love. Love one another as I have loved you. Loving one another and you fulfill the law. The kind of love that's being talked about is is a very specific type of love. And it isn't defined sentimentally, it isn't defined romantically, and it isn't defined emotionally. It is rooted in the will and it it is defined in terms of Choices made, choices made on the basis of being a redeemed heart through Christ's shed blood. So I'm not going to say that every time. But what I want you to remember is every time I talk about love in 1 Corinthians 13, just to save me repeating it, every time I use that word love, I am talking about love coming from the motive of Jesus shed his blood for my undeserving heart. Okay, so can you remember that? Every time I talk about love, love does... All I'm going to say is, love chooses to do this, love chooses to do this, love says it won't do this, it won't do this, it will do this. But every time I say, love will choose this, 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 I mean the kind of love that comes from a heart that appreciates that while it was at enmity with God, Christ gave mercy and love to me. All right? All right. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. I'm just going to do this once. Love is patient because God has been incredibly patient with me, right? Do you ever fail? Has anyone in this room failed the Lord? I'm not going to ask you what you did. Might have been an attitude. Were you greedy? Were you upset? Were you resentful? Has anybody failed the Lord in any way, shape, or form in the last 30 days? Let me see your hand. There's a couple of you that haven't. That's outstanding. You ought to just go start your own church somewhere and, and, and get a following. Now, here's my next question. Did he, did he turn you into a pillar of salt? Why didn't he? Well, because... Jesus shed blood. He intercedes for poor, weak Don Horbin, week by week by week, and Jesus keeps access to the Father. I can come for grace in my time of need. And God is, God is incredibly patient, is he not? 
This world that mocks and blasphemes. And he just, he just keeps quiet. That upsets a lot of people. Where is he? He's, he's not willing that any should perish, Peter. He's patient toward you. Now, that's, that's what I mean, this whole process. When I say, so love is patient. Why? Well, because it, it's rooted in what Christ has done for us, how patient God is with us. That's what I mean by the motive. I said I wasn't going to do it, and I already did it. Love is patient and kind, and I think I could extrapolate that too. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I'm just going to say this. That's a really important phrase because we live in a world where all sorts of people think that if we love people, it means you have to agree with what they do. Okay? It does not rejoice. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. I'm just stopping there. And you'll notice in that chart, I think what I did is I had a different translation and I probably plugged in words from that translation in the chart. It's the same idea, but you'll notice the words are slightly different from the text above, but I apologize for that. I just noticed that now. But you'll see it across the top. Love is, love is not, love does, love does not. So it's patient, for, kind, verse 4. Not jealous, for, not arrogant, not easily provoked, 5. Love does, well, it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I think, I think uh, pass away is, is in the text above. Same idea. Okay, so love does not brag, act unbecomingly, seek its own, take into account a wrong suffered, rejoice in unrighteousness. Now, that little table, the importance of the little table is, is its ability to show that scriptural love is primarily directed at the human will. Far more terms are used to describe love's actions than its definition. In fact, you'll notice all through 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul talks about love, he really doesn't define it except by what it does and doesn't do. That's how it makes itself manifest. That's how it becomes visible. Most of Paul's words are given to explain what love does and does not do. He rarely discusses how it feels. But you can't help but think. And I know, you know, I know we all fail in so many ways. But, but uh, you, you, can't, you, you just can't help but wonder how many marriages would end in divorce if all partners were constantly, perfectly, demonstrating the kind of love Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. And the irony is, 
increasingly, 1 Corinthians 13 is the, is the text du jour whenever there is a church wedding. And 52% of Christian marriages will end in divorce. You heard me right. The next time you see two people standing right here in Cedarview Community Church, right here in our church, and they're wed in front of this body of believers, the odds are greater that they will divorce than they will stay together. Right here. But they will read 1 Corinthians 13. Never mind the fact that Paul never, never had a wedding in mind when he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. He was talking about the exercise of gifts and ministries in the body of Christ. But you can't help but feel... You just, you, just, you just take people like me, people like you. If they're, if they're always patient, always kind, never jealous, never arrogant, never provoked, always rejoicing in the truth, always bearing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things, never failing, never bragging, never acting unbecomingly, never seeking its own, never taking into account a wrong suffered, that sounds like a pretty good marriage to me. Doesn't it to you? Parents and children would live in harmony. There would never be a church split. There would never be a church split. There might be a church plant. By the way, that's what we do. That's what we do today. We have a church split, and then the group that leaves, we call them a church plant. But it's not quite the same thing. Counselors' offices would usually be empty. This text teaches me. Those verses in 1 Corinthians 13, they teach me something I don't want to hear in the face of relational problems. These verses tell me much of the problem is solvable without changing anyone but me. Much of my problems are solvable, let me say it again, without changing anyone but me. I cut out a cartoon, I told you this before, out of Leadership Magazine when I used to get it, and I had it on my wall for a little while in my office, and it's a pastor, and he's talking to a couple. They're obviously there about their marriage, and then the woman is saying, how should I know what's wrong with my marriage? Ask stupid here. We usually do want to change others. Or we'd like to change our circumstances. And when you start looking at 1 Corinthians 13, primarily what the passage talks about is my actions, my responses. I said I wanted to talk a little bit about about prayer and problem-solving. The second point in your notes. Almost all Christians know these famous words. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, when you think about prayer, I think most Christians would look at daily prayer as a sort of discipline that we ought to observe and probably ought to observe better than we do. So somehow, we all sit here, we all know 
that God wants us to pray, and so we all feel that we should. That in itself is is a very difficult way to build a strong devotional life. God says I'm supposed to, and I should. My mother used to say I needed to eat liver, and so I should. But, But you can't make a child love, you can't make anybody, love liver just by saying they must eat it. Pray. Pray every day. Okay. Okay. I'll pray. You're not praying enough. I know I'm not here. Beat me. Go ahead. Just smack me on the back. I know I don't pray enough. The reason these words from that old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, the reason they're so important, and I'm I'm hoping to show you scriptural, is they address the proper attitude for coming to God in prayer. The hymn writer caught the idea that Don Horban will live much of his life in needless pain. Oh, what needless pain we bear. So the idea is Don Horban will live big chunks of his life in needless pain. That is, I take it to be, I will fall into problems of my own making unless I develop the habit of daily prayer. I will fall into problems. That's what this study's about, right? Getting out and staying out of personally sinful choices. I will fall into more of those wrong choices that will bring pain into my life if I don't pray often, regularly, frequently, and in a sustained kind of way. I want you to consider a couple of verses quickly with me, all right? Consider these scriptural provisions. Provisions for those who will regularly pray. A, prayer will provide strength in the face of temptation. Matthew twenty six forty one. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit, small s, indeed is willing. I really want to please Jesus. I want to be a good Christian. But the flesh is weak. We, we, we overestimate our ability to stay out of tempting situations. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation will come to everyone. You can't live in this world without being tempted. What prayer does is it helps keep you... It won't keep you from being tempted. What prayer will do is it will help keep you from entering into temptation. Buying into it. Yielding to it. It will keep you out of the clutches of the enemy. But the strength to resist temptation... The strength to resist temptation is not going to be found in the face of that temptation. Here's where I think we get it all wrong. The strength to resist temptation, it's too late to try and summon that strength when you're tempted in some way to sin. 
the strength you need to resist that temptation is something that has to be built up into your spiritual life long before the tempting situation arises. You, you may have it in your head that you're going to go out and, and, uh, and run a, a 20-mile marathon, and you really want to do it. And people who actually are foolish enough to do that kind of thing, they will tell you that, you know, you don't just get up in the morning and say, you know what, I really, really, really want to do this. The strength for running a 20-mile marathon isn't obtained the morning of the marathon. It's obtained the 15 years that precede it. When you exercise, when you stop eating Twinkies, when you go to the gym, when you you have the right equipment, when you train, and you build up the strength so that one morning, sure as anything, you'll be able to get up and say, today, I am running that marathon. You will be ready to do it, but you didn't get ready that morning. Watch and pray. When? Well, now. Watch and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Here's the problem with daily devotions. They never feel necessary. Do you know what I'm saying? You just, you just never get up in the morning whenever you do your devotions and, and open God's Word and read and you're stuck somewhere between Leviticus and Second Chronicles and you're reading in there and then your prayer time and you, and you do it. But honestly, honestly, on any given Tuesday when you have your devotions, you never actually feel like you can't get through Tuesday without those devotions. If you're honest, not one of us would say, you know what, I, I'm, I just can't go to work. I can't, I can't face this day. You probably could. You probably could. And you'd probably do just fine. But it's incremental. Sooner or later, what I'm leaving out of my life because it didn't seem urgent at that moment will start to take a toll. Here's where it'll take a toll. Temptations that will arise that I can't even see yet and that I would have a better grasp on and strength not to enter into, they will trip me up. Although I'm not likely to sense that urgency when I crack my Bible open in the morning and have my daily devotions. Everybody see what I'm saying? The strength you build up to keep from personally destructive choices, from remaking personally destructive choices at any given moment during the month of April, the strength to stay out of those situations isn't going to be obtained the morning of. And because you don't know when those things are going to happen, it's imperative that day by day by day you're in God's gym. Be in God's gym. Watch and pray. Why? Well, I don't want you entering into temptations. You can't pull the strength to resist temptation out of a rabbit's hat. The strength to say no to temptation, the strength to not make personally destructive choices is stored up long before the battle actually arrives. Okay, I took a while on that. Here's something else prayer will do. 
Prayer will help you live in fullness of joy, John 16, 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. We talked about that. That's a fascinating text because they had prayed before. Ask nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let me just say tonight, nothing will build faith and confidence in God like seeing him respond in answer to your prayer. It produces a joy that nothing else can. It may also deepen your joy by teaching you to see answers you weren't expecting when you first started asking. And you stop and go, oh, the wisdom of God. In fact, I didn't think he was doing anything. And look what happened. And what that does is it it breeds a confidence and a joy, a deep joy. C. Prayer will build perseverance and strengthen the Lord. You know these verses, Isaiah 40, 30, and 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It sounds like NASB to me. Is that what your text, does it read exactly the same? I feel like I have a, yeah, something in my Bible program. It, it's the same, the same idea. Just as I read that, I used to read the New American Standard for a long, long time, and that just had that feel to me. That word weariness. It's an old scriptural word for what we today would call stress. Stress doesn't just come from added pressure. It does. I I, I get it. I mean, I, I think sometimes I go through stressful situations. But stress doesn't just come from added pressure. It also comes from subtracted prayer time. That's all I'm going to say about that. So, so that the conundrum is when you get too busy to pray, that's the time you needed to pray more. <laughs> because, because there's a weariness that can set in. Even doing good things. You need time with the Lord. God heals affliction in response to prayer, James 5.13. God will give wisdom to those who ask in prayer. That's James 1.5, E. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Here's this wonderful promise, specifically aimed at helping Christians stay out of the pain of sinful choices. It's one thing to know what's right. It's another thing to have the wisdom to choose it. Because what's right can sometimes be difficult. It can sometimes be costly. It can, it can sometimes separate you from a pack that you care about and the admiration of people that you love. And so it's not just a matter of knowing what's right when God gives wisdom. It's, it's a matter of God coming and making you feel the draw of a good choice and pulling you into it. I pray that regularly. Let me just, I'll just confess. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you the number of times in my office with the door closed, I, I just pray and ask God for wisdom to keep me from making big mistakes in 
this church, my rule here that I have. I, 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 I sense more and more that I'm just, I'm not smart enough. I'm not smart enough in so many ways. Who is to, to you know, a church this size with all the different things going on? You don't have to fumble the ball very badly for it to have all sorts of consequences. And, and here's the irony of it. The longer, the longer I pastor, the less, the less I want to just rely on the accumulated experience of pastoring and the more I want to daily come and just say, Jesus, I, I will botch this up unless you give me wisdom. Just give me wisdom. Just keep me from making big mistakes that I can't even see yet. And I'm not smart enough on my own to avoid. The prayer for wisdom. Prayer for wisdom. Three. How much time do we have? It's 6.47. You know what? I'm going to wrap up. There's the thing there on conscience. Conscience, self-control, and the power of the Holy Spirit in uh, in staying out of... uh, sinful choices, but you got pretty complete notes there, and I want to have time for the interview, and uh, we want prayer groups and all sorts of stuff. Are you okay if we just do that?